Most action movies in the history of the world really are designed around one motif. And it's the idea, the motif of vengeance. Right? It's not just action movies. It's most movies, period, at least that I like. That probably says something about me that's really unhealthy. But there's a lot of movies that really are about vengeance. You know, something bad happens to the dude's wife or the guy's kids or to the guy's country or something early in the movie, and he's out for vengeance. You know, Sylvester Stallone made a career out of those movies in the 80s. You know, he took over the whole nation of Vietnam by himself, right, out of vengeance in Rambo and other movies. Vengeance, it's a big deal, man. It makes money in Hollywood. It sells movie tickets. It, in some ways, gratifies probably the baser parts of all of our human natures. But vengeance is something that undoubtedly people have an interest in. They want to see payback. They want to see people get their just desserts. They want to see the wicked punished and the poor and the good and the people that are trying to do the right thing triumph. That's a, that's a thing that everybody sort of longs for. Vengeance might not be the best way to go about that, but vengeance is very, very often, at least in our media culture, what we get. It's exciting. It makes for good action flicks. And we get pumped up, you know, sometimes after we, you know, see Die Hard, you want to run through a wall or rip apart a phone book with your bare hands. Maybe that's just men. But uh, it's definitely true of, definitely true of many of us. Um, the Bible definitely is concerned with people getting justice. The Bible is definitely concerned with the poor and those who are trying to live lives in the right way, doing well. The Bible is definitely concerned with the wicked not triumphing, but the Bible is not concerned with us exercising vengeance. And because that's true, frankly, the Bible's not nearly in some ways as exciting and gratifying to the baser parts of our nature like a lot of Hollywood movies are. Uh, we've been talking a lot already in our first few weeks of this series called Following Jesus about how the kingdom of Jesus and how life with Jesus really is very counterintuitive from the way we like to think our lives should be. And Jesus as a king is very different from the kind of worldly kings that you and I are used to seeing. And uh, life with Jesus in many ways is a topsy-turvy, unexpected sort of life. We've seen that as we started looking at these Beatitudes, which start Jesus' Sermon on the Mount together. Jesus told us a couple of weeks ago that those who are poor in spirit, those who bring nothing spiritually to the table, those are the people who are blessed. Those are the people who are going to enter the kingdom. Last week, Jesus said, as we saw in Matthew 5, 4, that those people who are mourners and sad and going through periods of despondency and darkness and depression, those who can express sorrow at the brokenness of their lives and the brokenness of the world, World, those people are going to be happy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and they will be comforted. And tonight, Jesus continues that tone of topsy-turvy, upside-down, counterintuitive ways of thinking about life. And he's reminding us again and again and again that following him, that being a disciple of his, that living in a community of people like we're trying to be here as a church, that seeks to be faithful to Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, oftentimes is going to bring us very quickly against the cultural flow and the cultural tide. Because tonight Jesus continues by telling us that those who are meek, those who are meek are blessed. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit 
the earth. And so we want to spend a few minutes tonight looking at that one verse, the third of Jesus' nine Beatitudes, and think about what it means when Jesus says this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so I want to ask three questions and hopefully answer them for you tonight. First, what does it mean to be meek? What is meekness? Second, why is meekness blessed? Why is it a good thing to be meek? And third, how do we grow in meekness? Now, those questions hopefully will build on one another, but that's where we're headed. What is meekness? Why is meekness blessed? And how do we grow in, in meekness, okay? So first, what is meekness? When Jesus says there, blessed are the meek, what does he mean? Meekness is, meekness is a combination of unassuming, unassuming humility, gentleness, and patience in the face of trial and difficulty. Meekness, as one commentator that I read this week puts it, is the poise of faith. The poise of faith. Meekness is is the ability to be humbly patient, especially when things in life not only aren't going our way, but when things in our lives are actively seeming to conspire against us. The Greek word, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, the language of Greek, the Greek word there that's used for meekness is in ancient Greek literature used oftentimes of the taming of wild animals. And every time I think about, for example, horses being tamed, I'm reminded of the novels of Cormac McCarthy. I don't know if any of you have ever read Cormac McCarthy. He's probably one of the greatest living American novelists. He writes a lot of westerns. You've probably seen some of his movies. No Country for Old Men, The Road. He's written a lot of of great books. If you haven't read him, check him out. He's great. But in one of his uh, books called All the Pretty Horses, which is another movie, Matt Damon was in it. I see all you ladies nodding your heads. Yes, I know that movie. Um, In one of the movies, uh, in one of the books Cormac McCarthy wrote, All the Pretty Horses, it's about this guy named John Grady Cole who's a young ranch hand who just has a way, a natural affinity for horses, for horse training. He just excels at it. And he's like 16 years old when the book begins. And he goes down to Mexico and works on a horse ranch and the whole narrative of the, of the book and of the movie is a narrative of irony because he is wonderful at taming wild animals, at causing these animals to become meek, but he's terrible at becoming meek and being tamed in his own life. And at sort of the pinnacle of the story, McCarthy actually quotes from Matthew 5.5 through the mouth of John Grady Cole. John Grady Cole says, the good book says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I'm not an enlightened man, but I pretty much think that that's true. And he's right. His experience with taming wild animals taught him over time that that's what meekness is. It's, it's the, the process from going to being wild and anxious and frenetic and out of sorts to being, able to, to being able to listen to the voice of your master, to being able to calm and quiet yourself, especially when you're facing difficulty, to be able to simply slow down and follow the lead of another. That's what meekness is. And to, uh, to put some flesh and some bones on that idea, I want to tell you two stories 
uh, that illustrate meekness. And they're both from the Bible. They're both from the Old Testament. The first one is from Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Bible chapter 13. And it's about a guy named Abraham, who's the first guy that God called. And eventually, Abraham's family becomes the nation of Israel. And Jesus is born out of his family. And God has called Abraham and given him promises. He said, go to this land, the promised land. And this land is going to be the land that I give to you and to your descendants. And so Abraham gets up and goes. And he takes his nephew, Lot, with him. And you get to Genesis 13, and the picture is this. They're going through the hilly western um, part of Palestine, and they come upon the promised land. And you can imagine them looking out over this large vista with these amazing, lush, fertile, green valleys and hills and just beauty on this side. And then over here, you know, it's okay. And Abraham and Lot, you know, their arms are around each other at the top of the mountain. They've journeyed to this land that God has promised. And, and Abraham is the older of the two. He's the more powerful of the two. He's the more wealthy of the two. But what Abraham does is interesting. In Genesis 13, he basically says, Lot, take your pick. I'm going to give you the choice of the best land here, this amazing property where you're going to be able to have a huge amount of livestock. You're going to get really, really rich. Or you can have this property, which is nice. It's okay. It's not the best. Where Abraham could have for sure taken, you know, the best property. He has um, the rights. He has the status. He's the man. He's the one that God spoke to, not Lot. He's in charge. But no, he doesn't do that. He sacrifices, in some ways, his own prerogatives, his own priorities. He's able to just be calm and peaceful and faithful, so much so that he is generous enough to give Lot the best land. That's an example of meekness. By the way, it worked out well for Abraham because Lot chose Sodom to hang out in. So things don't go well for Lot. Read some more Genesis. Um, that's the first story that illustrates meekness. The second one is from another famous Old Testament figure, King David. Uh, late in David's life, late in his time as king, his son Absalom has rebelled and has stricken up an insurrection against David. And it's gotten so bad by this point, 2 Samuel chapter 16 or so, that David has had to flee the capital city. He's fled Jerusalem, and he's got a small band of his most trusted troops and warriors and generals with him. And it's almost like he's gone back to his marauding days when Saul was still king. Things are going really poorly for David. Things are going downhill. He's in trouble. And he enters into a certain town outside of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 16. And there's this guy that just pops up sort of behind one of the walls of his house out of nowhere and takes a few rotten tomatoes and a few stones and just starts chunking them at David, the king. And starts cursing at him and screaming at him and yelling at him. You know, it's kind of like um, someone who's down on his luck and you see him and, you know, a, a, the kind of guy that sees someone down on their luck and thinks, I'm just going to, you know, smash my foot in their face and make them feel a little worse. That's what this guy's doing to the anointed of God, to the king. And Abishai, who's one of David's generals, says, David, let me, let me handle this. This guy's a punk. I've got a sword. I can go deal with this. I mean, boom, just like that. Uh, vengeance, right? I can handle this, no problem. One slice, head rolls, things are good to go. No more peon cursing at the king, the anointed of God. And so David, instead of saying, yeah, Abishai, please take care of that, or instead of saying, shut up, Abishai, I'm doing this myself, right? Which is what I would want to do if I were the king. David says, let him do it. Let him do it. Just keep walking. And he says, basically, God is in control. 
God is sovereign, and God knows what is best for me. And if God seeks in his own way to show this man justice now or later, that's fine. But I'm simply going to trust God and move forward without getting overly anxious about the problem people in my life. Those are examples of meekness. That's what it means. It's to be unassuming and humble. It's to be gentle. It's to be patient, particularly in the face of difficulty and trial. Okay, so second, why is that a good thing? Because <laughs> you might be thinking, that doesn't sound like something that's going to benefit me, frankly. Not many people, by the way, would agree in our culture that meekness is a blessed thing. And so let me just give you three reasons, real quickly, why I think and why the Bible says meekness is blessed. First, meekness is blessed because the meek ones are the ones who are truly wealthy. Look at the text again. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall, what? Inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. Jesus is saying here that those who grow in the characteristic of meekness, those who are over time able more and more to process their life with this sort of humility and patience and gentleness, are the people that really are wealthy. They are the ones, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that really possess everything. Interestingly, Abraham's example shows us, I think, in some way that this is true. Abraham came to possess land, like physical real estate, largely as he grew in meekness before the face of God. Those who are meek are those who, at the end of the day, are going to be really and truly wealthy. They're going to inherit this entire creation. Moreover, the new creation. It's a promise of future grace, as John Piper has said here in Matthew 5.5. 5. That's the first reason why meekness is blessed. It's blessed because the meek ones are the truly wealthy ones. Second, meekness is blessed because the meek ones are the really free ones. The meek ones are the really free ones. What do I mean? Think about what it's like to not be meek. Think about what it's like to go through life reacting viciously, <laughs> reacting quickly, reacting uh, brashly, reacting um, to either this degree or this degree to the bad things or the good things that happen in your life. Your life becomes an absolute roller coaster. The pace is totally out of control. Think about what it's like to try to, to keep up with the Joneses out here in suburban San Antonio. Think about what it's like to try in your own ability to manage and control and dictate the process of your life to keep up with all the activities of your kids, much less their inner lives. Think about what it's like to try to maintain various relationships that are healthy, all the while thinking that you can control what this other person is thinking. Think about what it's like to live a life that's not meek or calm or generous or patient, but a life that's out of control and chaotic and restless and frazzled and fragmented. That is a life, friends, that is a life of, of slavery. It's a life where you are, you are having things dictated to you by the circumstances or the people that are coming into your purview. It's not a life of freedom. What Jesus is saying here is that when you can attain and grow in meekness, you can truly be free from the rat race that so many of us find ourselves in so much of the time. Psalm 131 is a beautiful psalm. It talks about this. 
Um, Psalm 131 is David, and I, th- I think again at the end of his life, and he says, uh, let me just find it here real quick. Here in Psalm 131, David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great for me. In other words, I've attained to some degree meekness. I'm good to go. I finally calm myself. He says, I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. When you can grow in meekness, you can finally experience the freedom that comes with just living a life of calm, less anxious presence. You can love people that are standing in front of you. You can think more clearly. You cannot be so worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. You can finally be free. The third reason why meekness is blessed is because the meek one is the one who is able to do well in the face of the wicked. He's able to do well in the face of the wicked. Really, Jesus here in Matthew 5 is quoting another psalm. This is the only beatitude that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 37, verse 11. And I didn't know this. I had to look at Psalm 37 and then study it for a little while. Psalm 37 is basically um, an elaboration on the idea of, of not fretting, not fretting in the face of wickedness in your life. It's one of those psalms, kind of like what we talked about last week, where the psalmist is saying, God, hello. <laughs> Anybody out there? Do you not see what's taking place? Things are not going well, much less for me. Things in this world are a mess. Where are you? You've said you're good. You've promised to take care of your people, but I don't see you anywhere. Where are you, God? How long, O oh Lord? Anybody home? That's one of these psalms. And if you read through it, I'm not going to read through it, but if you read through it later on, you'll just see again and again he's saying, don't worry, the wicked, they're having their time now. Things look like that the wicked are going to win. It looks like things are going well for them. Those people that hate Jesus and don't want to go to church and live however they want. It looks like they're the ones that are getting to have all the fun. They're the ones that have all the money. They're the ones for whom things are going well. But trust God. Trust God. Don't fret. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You see, when you're growing in meekness, when you're able to experience the patience and the humility and the gentleness that is involved in the meek spirit, You're able to see the brokenness and the hard things and the terrible things and the wickedness of the world and the wickedness of many people and say, you know what? God is in charge. It's when when the sovereignty of God goes from being an abstract theological concept to a very fundamental, vivifying, life-giving reality. You can say, man, things look bleak. Man, this world is broken. Man, that guy is a mess, and he, I don't know why this person is doing this to me, but I trust that God is in control. He's the one that's going to exercise justice. He's the one that's going to do what's right. He's the one that's going to take care of this. I'm going to, rather than be anxious, rather than worry, rather than fret, trust him. Those are three reasons. There's a lot more, I'm sure. Three reasons why meekness is blessed. Let me just say this at this point. You cannot achieve or attain meekness unless you first believe that God is who he says he is. Meekness only comes via the avenue of faith. And that's why some of these things I've just been speaking about are very, very clearly and self-evidently things that we just have to believe. 
Like, we just have to believe that we're going to inherit the land, because that ain't going to happen today, and it ain't going to happen tomorrow. We've got to believe. We've got to express trust in God. And so if you're here and you're struggling with a faith fight with God and with Christianity and with who Jesus is, then I want you to know that there are many, many, many blessings to exercising, to placing faith in Jesus. And one of those blessings is the ability to grow in meekness and therefore receive these blessings that come with it. And, and you know, when I talk about growing in faith, I don't just mean believing in God. 99.9% of people in the history of the world have believed in God. You know, the atheism is just a minor little blip on the intellectual radar of our world history. And it has no credibility or staying power. Most people in the history of the world have believed in God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about believing in God. I'm talking about believing God. Trusting Him. And only when you believe and trust God that His promises are true and real will you believe that these promises for the meek or are true and real as well. And really, that comes to the fore when you think about the cross of Jesus. That comes to the fore when you understand and believe the gospel. You see, the gospel of Jesus, the core message of Christianity says, it says this. It says that God, in his sovereignty, in his infinite power, loves you so deeply that he was willing to send his own son, Jesus, who was perfect, who had an intimate communion with him before the creation of the world. He was willing to send Jesus to die on the cross for our rebellion against God because he loves us. That's part of the gospel, that God loves us, each one of you, so, so deeply with such lavish abundance that he sent Jesus to die in your place so that you don't face the punishment for your sins. And the gospel also says that God cares so much about the wrong and evil things in this world that he was willing to punish Jesus, that he is going to punish sin. You see, at the death of Jesus, you see that you were deeply, deeply loved because he was willing to put Jesus death for you, to death for you. And you see that this world is a deeply, deeply wicked because Jesus had to die for it. So at the cross, you see both the love and the justice of God on display. You see the place where, as many hymn writers have said, his love and his justice kiss. And when you believe that, when you see the gospel, when you get what's happening at the cross, you can really begin to live a life of meekness. You can't stop being anxious until you believe in your heart that God is both in control and that he loves you. It doesn't just make you live a life of meekness to know that God is in control, because that could be very bad if God's character is flawed. What will give you meekness is when you believe that God is both in control and deeply, deeply in love with you in Jesus. And you can begin to grow in meekness as you look at the wounded brokenness of this world when you know that God is willing to right all of the wrongs in this life, and he's proven that by doing it at the cross. His justice is on display there. So when you see and believe the gospel, you begin to attain the sort of meekness that Jesus is speaking about here. You begin to follow him. And as you follow him, you begin to grow in these areas. Last thing, real quick. How do you grow in meekness? Okay, given that you're with me to this point. We know what it is. Hopefully we, we're all on the same page about why it's a blessing, why it's a good thing. How do we grow in it? How do we acquire more of it? Man, it'd be really... I wish I could just give you three simple steps. I am going to give you three ideas, and they're not simple, and they're not just little steps. 
But I do think it, it would be helpful just to think for a minute about things we can like practically do <laughs> in our lives to grow. What does it look like? Here's another way to ask the question. What does it look like to believe the gospel day to day so that we're growing in meekness? Okay, first, one way you can grow in meekness is to, is to practice times of solitude and prayer. Um, is to spend time alone listening to God as he's revealed himself to you in his word and spending time with him in prayer. And listen, I'll put it this strongly. Until you do that, you should never expect to grow an inch in your Christian experience, much less in meekness. What are you doing right now to regularly spend time in prayer and meditation and contemplation upon God and his word? If you need to get up 30 minutes earlier, then do it. That's one thing I've learned. I've just got to get up before the kids do. If I don't get up before the kids, it's, it's toast, right? Not happening, right? I just got to go make cereal at that point. Got to get up early. You got to do it, though, folks. If you want to grow, if you want to achieve these sorts of things, you need to practice the presence of God. Maybe you should start writing in a prayer journal. That's something that's helped me. Maybe you should read a couple of really helpful books on prayer and meditation. Uh, one is called A Praying Life by a guy named Paul Miller. It's a revolutionary, transformative book on your prayer life. I would encourage you to read it. You should read Spiritual Disciplines of a Christian Life by a guy named Don Whitney. Use the many resources that are available to help you grow in the area of contemplation, meditation, practicing a prayer life, an intimate walk with God. Because as you do that, you find an anchor for your souls in the midst of the winds and the waves of your life. So that's one way that you can practically grow in meekness. Another way is that you can live a life in real community. Live a life in real community. We talk about that all the stinking time here. And we're going to keep doing it, by the way, because we all stink at this. Um, live a life in real community, a life where you can be authentic with other people. How is that going to help you grow in meekness? Well, if you're living a life of authentic community, you're going to have people in your life who are going to be honest with you. Who are, going to, who are going to love you enough to tell you some of the things they see in you that you potentially need to repent of or grow in or think about more. You know, we've talked about this before, that the way we view ourselves is very inaccurate. The way you view yourself is like when you look in a carnival mirror at the carnival. You know, those curvaceous mirrors that make you look like your head is, this is definitely mine. The head's this big, right? Um, skinny, fat, skinny, whatever. That's about the level of accuracy we have on our own hearts. But living in community with people that truly love you helps increase your accuracy of the way you view yourself. When you're opening up your lives to others and they're opening up their lives to you, you in your combined sinfulness can in a combined way repent and believe together. You are not going to grow on your own. You're not. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. So get involved in a missional community group. Spend time reading the Bible with other people here at the church or elsewhere. Get involved in prayer with someone else if you're struggling with that on your own. Last thing, last thing you can do to grow in meekness is, and this is tough, this is even tough for me to say, embrace, embrace differences of opinion and perspective on things that aren't essential. Okay, I got it out. Let's pray. No, just kidding. Um, one thing that's, I think, very helpful for us, to, for us to develop humility, gentleness, character, and patience is to be around people that don't agree with us on all the little mini things that Christians love to fight and argue about. If it's someone that doesn't agree that Jesus is God, that's an issue. 
You should love that person, but you should also witness to them because they're not believers, and we want to love those people, but Jesus is God. We can't, as Christians, disagree on that, but there's a billion things we can disagree on and both still, you know, have good arguments, and I think it's very healthy for us to be willing to embrace the idea that we might not always be 100% accurate with our own preferences and opinions on secondary issues. The music you want might not be the best music for Christchurch. Music I want might not be the best music. Um, the way that you choose to express your Christian liberty with regard to alcohol might not be the way that everyone else chooses to do that. The way that you think about the end times, oh my goodness. Oh, that's another sermon series. It's okay to have some difference of opinion on that. It is okay for us to embrace differences of opinion on these things and to love one another. It doesn't mean you have to just cater and cave. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, you can have a good, solid argument and debate with someone that you disagree with on these things and still be acting in a meek way because you're doing it humbly, you're doing it gently, you're doing it patiently. But those are great ways for us to develop meekness in our own lives. Jesus is at work. <laughs> He's at work in us, and ultimately the only way these characteristics are going to manifest themselves in our lives is as we believe the gospel. But these are just some practical tools that I certainly need to embrace in my life and that I hope to see us embrace corporately. Last thing, we talked about vengeance at the very beginning, and uh, I think a better story is that, that demonstrates what uh, the gospel is saying when it's calling us to meekness is the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've ever read that book. The movies all stink, by the way. The movies are terrible. The book is great. Read the book. Um, but the book is about this guy that gets wrongfully imprisoned. Um, Alexander Dumas tells us about this guy that gets wrongfully imprisoned. He gets thrown in this prison out on an island, and he's in the prison for like 13 years. And before he escapes the prison miraculously, um, the prison mate that he has is this old friar. And the friar tells him about this place, this island, the island of Monte Cristo, where there's this insane amount of gold, and he escapes his prison and finds his way to that island and just becomes immaculately wealthy and decides for the next decade of his life to just seek to wreak vengeance on every single person that had him wrongfully imprisoned. And it's like a huge narrative of him trying to do everything, get back at everyone, and it's just catering to all of our desires for vengeance. But Things don't work out well for him because in the end, innocent people begin to die. He realizes that he's not in control. He realizes that the desire for vengeance is not a healthy desire. It's not a desire that's going to bring flourishing to his heart. And he repents. He turns. He begins to experience meekness. And the last line of the book is a wonderful summary of the entire point of this sermon. The last line of the book, the Count of Monte Cristo is speaking to a friend. And his friend says, what is it that you've learned through this whole experience? And he says, two words I have learned. Wait and hope. Wait and hope. That is what Jesus is calling us to when he calls us to meekness. And know, beloved, that when you wait and hope, you will inherit the earth. Let's pray.